one. Continues the latter section of this chapter that deals especially with the sovereignty of God. Today we title uh, the message, Why Did God Choose Some? That's the that a lot of people don't want to hear, disagree with, and yet the Bible, I think, is crystal clear in this passage. Uh, certainly, uh, I think, is a little bit more today. But last week we saw that the gospel call will never stay by itself. Say, well, you said that Paul said it's the power of God, the gospel is the power of God. Yes, but the gospel call, uh, verbally, through my voice, when I relay the gospel message, does not say that it must have the power of the Holy Spirit to quicken the dead heart so that we will accept it. So the natural man has no use for the gospel, which is why the Lord uses this method, particularly why he uses the foolishness of preaching. Because only God can cause it to work, so he alone gets all the credit if someone is saved. He's basically saying that he deliberately uses an offensive gospel method to say so that when the natural man hears it, it is converted, it must be by the power of God. This effective call is called the efficacious call. And our assurance, in part, is in the fact that God is in charge of our salvation from eternity to eternity, and no part of it is left for us to accept, to reject, or fail to live up to by our own natural strength. If that was the case, we wouldn't have nobody, right? And so the Lord makes us willing to be converted, and He continues to keep us willing to the very day of our glorification. Some of the things that we that he has dealt with specifically or touched on, I think, in these verses. So, there are several things we could emphasize in this passage, but let's try to keep it in its context. And that is combating division. While there's much about the sovereignty of God here that we want to cover, we don't want to lose sight of one of the reasons he's dealing with this. At the heart of division is Pride, and we're going to see here that the Corinthians were had a big problem with pride, and we all have problems with pride. It's not whether the Corinthians alone had that problem; it takes different forms. But at the heart of division is pride. When I don't get along with someone, either them or me or both have a pride a, a pride problem. And in this case, they were emphasizing perhaps peripheral doctrines above others. I want us to uh, preach on this or to believe this or I, I'm going to emphasize this. And if you don't agree with me on this, why well, I can't get along with you in some way, it's fine. Uh, perhaps uh, it's emphasized to one teacher. I think this guy's got it all, all together and so we have to kind of do it his way or we can't get along. Last week we saw how Paul reminds us that we are called unto Christ by the simple preaching of the cross. It is a call away from everything this world tells us to be, and therefore the gospel is filling to the world because it seems like we are abandoning everything that is important for things that we can't even see, that we are willing to do without this life, whether it be material things or or, or popularity or whatever, in order to have Christ. It doesn't make any sense to them. And so this goes right along with our election as well, since everything God does is to glorify himself 
And so he works in such a way that points to his power and not the way man would do things. In other words, you know, sometimes we get so bent out of shape that God choosing to save some and not others, but that is precisely why he does that, because it doesn't often doesn't make any sense to us, at least not in the natural way of thinking, until God opens our eyes to see what he is doing. And so it includes choosing to build his church generally with the weak and despised of humanity. And you see those who have a difficult time with this, and they think they have to bring in worldly methods and entertainment or one thing or another to get the church to grow because they don't believe that the gospel message grows churches. But at the same time, we got to remember that well, growth is certainly something we want, and it should be part of a church to some degree. It is primarily to preach the word. Whether anyone gets saved or not is something God will take care of. But we are here to exalt the Lord, not to necessarily get converts, although obviously we want converts. That's certainly a byproduct. But we are here to preach the word, to glorify God, to edify the saints, and just exalting God, whether anybody wants to hear it or not, if that's important. The Corinthian saints were status seekers. Paul wanted them to see how foolish it was in light of divine wisdom and power and how inconsistent status seeking is with the gospel. And it's not that they, that we don't have this problem being status seekers, but in their context, uh, that was something that they were battling. We'll talk about it here in just a moment. And this is why we read about uh, verses 18 to 25 last week. Paul challenges his readers to take a good look around the church to know who was not present among them. Glaringly absent in the church are those people who hold positions of status in the world and who hold secular values. The church is not made up, he says, of wise men, of scribes, of debaters in verse 20. And this doesn't mean that, that we don't have wise people in the church. In fact, if wisdom comes in the fear of the Lord, if it begins there, then we would expect we all have a certain measure of wisdom, true wisdom, right? But we're talking in secular terms. The people of the world sees as wise. We have gifted people in the church. We have great apologists of the church, debaters what that word means in the church. But few are recognized by the law as so worthy. We talked a little bit about this in Sunday school. In few instances where Christians have had freedom, a, a measure of freedom, and some money, some blessings materially from God, great Christian men have risen up and had had some measure of prominence. The world might know about them some degree. You know, Spurgeon obviously was well known in uh, in his day even by the world in the world. And uh, so that, that that can't happen. But it is, it's a rare thing worldwide. And as we were saying in Sunday school, as Christians, we live in the world of preaching and preachers. But if you go outside of these walls, the, the, you can survey the 200 houses around us, and I bet you 
very few, if any, would know who Spurgeon is or who some of the great preachers of our day are, certainly of the past, because that's not the world that they live in. We are anonymous as soon as we step out of these walls. And so now, in verses 26 to 31, Paul wants the Corinthians to give thought to who is present in the church. The great and mighty are not present in the church, but who is present in the church. And he tells us uh, that it's not the wise, the the wealthy, and the powerful. In other words, you'll look around, see who are here. And and it's not doesn't elevate our pride, but we realize that we're nobody's in the world's eyes, but there's a reason behind all that, which is what Paul is getting at. So the second half of this chapter should knock the wind out of anyone who thinks more highly of himself than he ought to, or to think that we must use worldly means and have slick methods to get the work done. Uh, you know, I know Arminians tend to say, well, Calvinists are prideful people, because, it's, well, you're because you think, think you're the elect and other people aren't. Well, that's a, a misnomer, that, that's a, uh, a canard, because, uh, and I'm not saying that Calvinists don't have to battle pride like everybody else, but the very idea that God chose me, and the only reason I'm in faith is not because I am smarter than my neighbor and I believe, it is only because God reached out and fucked me up is extremely humbling. Unless you just completely don't have any idea what we're talking about here. So all that shows to think that um, to be more uh, to think more highly of yourself shows that you have no confidence in the Holy Spirit, or that you think the natural man is capable of believing without his aid. In other words, so what this is telling us is that uh, without the power of the Holy Spirit working, we would all be lost and undone. And that's what the culture in Paul's day, in the Corinthians' day, uh, emphasized, philosophical cleverness. Cleverness of speech, not followers. Talked about that a little bit last week, you know, like with the Jews even. The, the, what rabbi do you hold to? Who are you following? What system uh, do you embrace? And that's why the Corinthians were struggling with Paul or Apollos or Peter because that was just the mentality. You had to find that rabbi, that teacher, that philosopher and, and which and then you embrace that and you become a follower of him. And Paul says, wait just a minute, we're followers of Christ, the word of God. And maybe that doesn't seem all that wise to you. It's, it's kind of simple, but that's okay. That's, that's what we're here for. So Paul is reminding us that this is not how Christ builds his church through clever people with clever systems. This should mean something to churches that try to come up with plans to build the size of their church with something other than the gospel. In other words, it, it, preaching the gospel is what this is about. But this is what we emphasize. And God either uses it or he doesn't. But that's what we, that's the benefit to the foolishness that people are saved. And so this applies whether it be music or drama or activities. Not, those things aren't necessarily wrong in and of themselves. But even things that have legitimacy cannot take the place of preaching of God's word or the result will be religious activity but not kingdom 
building. To me, this explains a lot of what is happening in many churches today and why they are full of so many lost people. And I'm talking about the whole spectrum of churches. Because many have lost leadership, or that leadership thinks the Bible is too boring or passe to build their church, so they've got to come up with something else, something that entertains, something that draws the word, the world into the church. But I'm not here to try to, I, I, we want to invite the world into the church, but we got to, but, but remember that the whole point Paul is saying here is that the gospel is offensive to the world. We invite them in, not with something that attracts them, but something that's going to offend them. And then when God saves them, what do we do? All glory be to God. Because we deliberately did not try to attract them. And that's one of the problems that you know, happens you know, with uh, Easter time, where you, you got these big displays of, of the crucifixion, the resurrection, these promises. That the world come in, and they not they are impressed by that. They they like that, and the mere fact that they like that and are not offended by it shows that drama is not the preach of the gospel because you cannot get at what is really going on in the cross and the resurrection by drama. It's got to be explained. It's got to be expounded from the Word of God, and that's where the uh, offense. And so at the heart of our text today is why God elects and saves and works as he does. And what we find is that God loves something and God hates something. And what I want us to see is that this is normal for him and for us as well. God chose some and he has despised or rejected others. And it's a message that offends even some Christians. But offend it must. And, and just think about it for a moment. If you love something strongly, you will automatically hate other things equally. If you love freedom, you hate slavery. If you love your children, you're going to hate anything that harms them. If you love people, you'll hate murder. Right? And it goes hand in hand. And if God loves, the Godhead loves itself Freely, and in the Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father, the Holy Spirit. That they are, they were from eternity set their love upon one another. There was this love between the Godhead, and and, and so and God, and all things are to glorify Him. Anything then that would seek to take away His glory, that would seek to uh, dishonor Him, He must necessarily hate. And if He didn't, it would make no sense. If he did not have holy wrath and pour out holy justice upon anything but sin that would take away from his glory, then he would be saying, I'm not all that worthy of glory, and he says, I'm okay with that. And of course, that cannot be. Understandably, then, it's no different with God. The three persons of the being of God have a perfect love between them that has always been because only Yahweh is the supreme good and glory of all things. There, and before he created all things, there was only God. There's nothing else that is glorious. Therefore, he must necessarily have just wrath toward any of his creatures that rebel against him and try to bring glory to themselves. 
it necessarily follows. And I would just recommend to you desiring God and the pleasures of God by John Piper because I don't think I really even began to, to have any, I really understand this until I read those two books. I was, I was given the pleasures of God first, which is actually sequel. But they just bring this out uh, very, very strongly, very well, and I would certainly recommend this to you. So let me just share some scripture that I think supports what I just said. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and a hand that shed innocent blood. Now, one of the things we hear today is, well, God hates the sin, but loves the sinner. Now, do I believe that God has a general love on all his creatures? Absolutely. I believe he, he, he does love all people in a general way. He commands all men everywhere to repent. He's the Savior of the world. There's a sense in which he wants all men to be saved, right? But, that doesn't mean that he doesn't at the same time have wrath and hates the sinner. It's the sinner that rebels against him. Sin is merely the effect of the rebellion in that heart. He must hate the sinner. The heart. He hates a heart that devises wicked plans. The heart is who I am. God hates that. Feet that haste run evil. Run to evil. If God hates my feet, he hates me. In, in, in the sense that we're talking about, in, this, in his wrath being upon me. And then notice here, a false witness who breathes out lies and one who stores discord among brothers. That is saying that God hates a person in some way, right? Some, or Proverbs 16.5 Everyone who is arrogant in his heart is an abomination to the Lord. That goes beyond just hating the sin. Be assured he will not go unpunished. And that helps us understand what the hate is. We talk about hate, being a despise, of wrath being upon someone who has broken law. Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. So be very careful about this idea that God loves the sinner, but he hates the sin. And it, that just completely oversimplifies what, what's going on here what sin is, and what a holy God, how he must react. This is why we are all condemned, while we are all born, as Ephesians 2 says, under the wrath of God, because God hates a false witness. God hates a heart that devises wicked plans. That's how we all were at one time. God hates human pride. Why? Because it displaces him. He must hate it because it is a, an affront to him to do his glory. Notice here in Acts 12.22, the people were shouting, this is as Herod was speaking, a voice of a god is not a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. God's wrath was poured out not against sin, but against Herod. And I wonder if this is not an act to remind preachers 
of who they are and who, what, uh, what they better be exalting in their ministry and in their preaching. That, that if I, I get full of myself and I get some people who actually say, boy, you are a good preacher, and if I don't immediately give all the glory to God, uh, that's how I can end up, and rightly so. Why did he strike him dead? Because he listened to the people. It was bad theology. So as you read through First and Second Corinthians, we see that pride is the root of the church. Um, and just, I just, these are just some experts from these two books that remind us of this. So let no one boast in men, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. If then, if then you received it, why do you boast as if it were not a gift? Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. And you are arrogant. Knowledge puffs up, love builds up. So over and over again, he's saying, look, you guys, you're puffed up. You're arrogant. And what is the, the one message in the latter part of this chapter? You have absolutely nothing to be arrogant over. The mere fact that you think you're better than somebody else, or your system is better than someone else, and that it's about you and not the Lord, you have lost your way. So what's the beautiful thing that is replaced or ruined by pride? What does God love so much that he must take pride with all his might? And the answer is seen in these texts. We kind of boil it down. He loves the heart that boasts in the Lord. He loves the heart that gives him credit for what he alone can do. Because that's why he created us. Because that's what he deserves. He loves the heart that relies on his power. He loves the heart that wants him to get the glory in all things. And that wants the power of the sun to shine in our weakness. And anything short of that, he must take. He must deal with. We were made to boast in God. And that's kind of at the heart of all this. We were created to glory. You know, the, the, uh, we have the word boast here. Uh, the KJV has glory. The idea of rejoicing in something, of finding pleasure in it, of seeing it as, as that which is most important, gives meaning to you. There's, there's so many ways to kind of look at this. But we were made to give God credit for all good. We were made to rely on His power. We were made to magnify His glory and His sufficiency in our weakness. We were created to glory in something greater than ourselves. And you see a little bit of that. You know, we're getting ready to go to southern Utah. Um, we were out west uh, a couple years ago. And there's something that, that in us that when we step out on a ledge and we see the, like a grand canyon or some magnificent sight that we are just, it, it's fulfilling we were made to view something greater than ourselves and find pleasure in it. And creation is supposed to be a reminder that there's a God behind it that someday, as we saw in Revelation 22, we shall see the face of God. We will see the sight that will obliterate everything else we've ever seen and be astounded with it. And what sin is, what fallenness is, is for us to walk around in this and look at created things and creatures and be enthralled with that rather than God or more so than God. And 
God must be a friend. It must be an affront to Him. But as we come to boast in Him, to trust in Him, we find love in Him, rest in Him, we can we be satisfied with Him. Pride destroys our lives because it seeks to get us to find happiness apart from Him, which will only lead to misery and eternal death. So if God did not oppose our pride or our sin, and again, this kind of goes back to Piper's book, this is the point he makes. If becoming and loving something more than God leads to destruction, if God did not somehow arrest us from that and get us out of that, he would be hating us. Because we're destroying ourselves, and if he doesn't interfere, he hates us. Well, there we go right back to the to the elect, to those he does not elect. He has elected to arrest us from our sin and, and reveal himself to us and bring us back to where we should be. He is letting others destroy themselves, which is, I think, biblical case is. God hates our pride because it ruins us by refusing the gospel. And Satan tries to get us to boast in ourselves and to rely on ourselves, which will open. And again, if you think about it, this is illustrated in many ways in the scripture, but Proverbs uh, thirteen twenty four says that if you love your child, you'll spank them. You'll spank the will right out of him, the, the, the stubbornness right out of him, the self-will out of him. He who spares the rod uh, hates his son, the Bible says. So, why? Because the world completely turns that around. I love my child. I would never strike him. I would never do it. I, I, I want him to be happy at all costs. No, because you see that he will destroy himself and you arrest, you arrest that. You bring it to an end. through discipline, right? Because you love them. And to let him go his own way is to hate him. It says God lets the lost go their own way. So again, think those things through. Let's just try to uh, follow Paul's logic here then. A few points. First of all, verse 22, man is made to boast in something, to pursue someone or something, and to find fulfillment in that. And the natural man boasts in power and intellect. Of course, Adam and Eve, they fell because uh, Satan tricked them into thinking, tricked Eve into thinking that she needed something other than what God had said, right? We will boast in almost anything. Our bodies, our money, the woman on our arm, our education, our power, our fame. We'll even boast of things that we have nothing to do with. We're, we're, it's so ingrained in us. It's so who we are. And God made us this way, but sin has twisted it. We even boast in our sports team. You know, so, you know, Pittsburgh wins the World Series, and we, well, she's something more, has half a chance to have They win the Super Bowl. And we say, we, we won. No, you didn't win anything. That team over there won. But you identify vicariously, you glory in that, and, and you find satisfaction in that. You, you identify with that. But they're admitting that we need something outside of ourselves to have meaning in anything that, of course, other than the Lord is sin. Secondly, then, here we see, verse 25, that actually only God has anything to boast in because all that we have comes from Him. 
He is the only one capable of doing something solely by his own power and wisdom, solely from that which originates in him. No one else can say that, because I have absolutely nothing. I don't have the air that I breathe, I don't have the strength or the wisdom that God has not given me. So everything I do is the result of him. He must get the glory. And sin is ignoring God altogether. How many people in this world do go through all their lives doing what they do and God doesn't get any glory? That's what sin has done to us. That what wisdom we have comes from him because he's the first cause of all things. And so Paul in verse 25 kind of uses hyperbole because nothing about God is really foolish or weak. Uh, the cross is a good example of that. He allows himself to appear weak, to be abused by his creatures. All along, though, he's destroying the, the power of sin. He's doing exactly what he wants to do. And so only a truly powerful or sovereign can allow himself to appear weak, right? And yet at the end be victorious. But just think about it. If the, if our highest wisdom is the foolishness of God and his foolishness is higher than that, that we can rely upon God for everything because as wise as we man can be, it cannot compare to who God is. The power that man can come up with, whatever it is, is nothing to God. And it's so good for us to remember who God is comparison to ourselves. So only God can boast, or the idea here is to glory in himself, because there's no one else to glory in. Thirdly, it was God's wisdom to block man's attempt to satisfy himself by his own wisdom. But you kind of see that like in verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, in other words, God, it was the wisdom of God who, who says the world did not know God through wisdom. It is part of God's plan that man cannot know God through natural means. It, it, he, blo- and he, he blocks man to, to, uh, to satisfy himself by his own wisdom. Because that's what the fall has done. It, it's his desire then to reveal himself to him to, so he can find wisdom. In other words, he will not allow us to be happy living for ourselves, but he causes us to find true life in the last place that we would have looked, and that is in the cross of Jesus Christ. He will not allow man to be satisfied in this life. You know, we look at people and think, well, look, all the money he's got, whatever, they're, they're satisfied. But we know that at the, at, on their bed at night, and they're, when they're willing to be honest with themselves, no, they have not found pleasure. They have not found happiness and contentment that can only be found in Jesus Christ. And so the wise of the world in this passage are those who see themselves as rich and wise and able to take care of themselves. But God <clears throat> says such a one, he, he takes such a one and shows him the cross, the last place a proud person would go and converts him by his power because only God can get someone to quit trusting in, him, in his money and trust in the Lord. Someone used the illustration it's kind of like taking a wealthy American driving his Mercedes around Jerusalem and he drives up to Golgotha and he stops at the front of the cross 
and uh, they, they they take him out and they say, "Look at this beaten, bleeding form," and told, "Sir, if you're going to find wisdom and righteousness and redemption, you're going to kneel down and cast yourself before this bleeding, beaten figure, this weak figure." And the, the wealthy American is not you. He can't understand that. He said, well, I, I've got more power than him. But that's what the gospel does. It makes you realize, oh, no, 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 no. The power of God is seen in that weak, beaten form. That God would, have, would allow himself to be put in that situation where we might be saved. So only the action and power of God can cause this to happen, which is what the last four verses point out. If the reason for who God elects is to elect mostly the weak of the world, so that his kingdom is spread throughout, uh, through the weakest of people, he must get all the glory. That's exactly why he elects who he does. Their actual conversion must be because of his power and not man's will or effort. Or the whole thing collapses. If, if it's only the, the, the wise, the one who is sensitive to the gospel or whatever, who, who gets saved, then, then if man gets credit, it, it undoes the whole point of, of, of what God has elected to do, to save the weak and the, the ones who don't have the wisdom. This is why I think many deny election and the sovereignty of God and salvation. Isn't just, it's not just a minor difference between Christians. It's a major difference in which one side refuses to give God the glory he clearly says in this passage is the reason why he does everything to start with. Everything he does is to glorify himself. And if we say, well, okay, that's all well and good, but the one place God is not sovereign is in my heart. Well, you've completely undone the whole point. At the end of the day, either God decides who will be in the kingdom or we decide. Is there any doubt what side our text is taken? I don't think so. And the word chose in verse 27 is very significant where he says, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise because it underscores that God chose those of the lowest rung of the social ladder. It was not that these were all that would come to God, which is what, you know, then he say, but, but read it, God chose the lowly. So it's not that these were the only ones who would come to God. It is that these are those whom God ordained to come to him. It was not that God could not could do no better. It was God chose not to do any better. It's not that he didn't have a lot of other people he could have chosen, but he chose only these. And the difference it's not that they were better or smarter than anyone else, obviously. And so if conversion consists of, of two people standing together listening to the gospel, and one decides to believe, and the other does not, and it is solely based on their own will, then who gets the credit? Remember the illustration of the preacher I heard last week, I think of this, who says that <clears throat> he illustrated conversion by our hearts being clay 
soft clay, and when the gospel, they hear the gospel, some, by the heat of the gospel, are hardened, and they don't believe, and some are softened, and they do believe, that, you know, somehow, you know, every, every person's different, but, like, you know, who knows why, right? <clears throat> but if, if conversion is basically, arbitrarily, this person believes, and the, and the other person doesn't, who gets the credit? Look, got to be the person who believes. If, it, if it's my uh, will that at the end of the day makes this the difference. But this undermines election. Since it is futile for God to elect from eternity a people to save if at the end of the day they can decide whether they're going to be saved or not. Who's electing who? Either God is elected us or I elect myself. When I decide to believe. And I challenge anyone to find in this text something for which we can take credit for. That's the whole point of the text, that we have nothing to take credit for. Remembering that this is how we achieve unity. <coughs> Especially when Romans 3 says that no one can do good, that no one fears God by themselves. And then you got Romans 8, 7 and 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And the word cannot is, in the Greek is where we get the word dynamite. Power. It means power. So it's not that, so when it says he cannot, it means that he is unable. He does not have the strength or what it takes to the power to do it. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Cannot do it. And, you know, when you got verses like that, uh, it's hard to imagine why someone would think, well, at the end of the day, we all have the ability to believe or not. Because it seems like it's saying the exact opposite. As I said before, you have a right to your opinion, but you don't have your right to your own facts. If your opinion arises by ignoring the facts as the Bible presents it, then it's not a legitimate opinion, or it's not a legitimate belief system. Does this not also demonstrate that we cannot overemphasize God receiving all glory? We cannot overemphasize that. Because that's the reason everything exists. Now, if I spoke on the sovereignty of God and in in Him get the glory every week, there would be a sense in which I'm overemphasizing it because I'm ignoring the rest of Scripture. But, I mean you cannot overemphasize the glory of God and the sovereignty of God because it forms the basis for everything else in God's word. So without that forming the basis, the foundation of everything we preach about, you don't understand what we're saying. And you see that in the, in the work of the cross and in the gospel. If you don't understand the sovereignty of God in all this, you're going to completely misunderstand what God is doing on the cross. In the gospel message. There are those who say that God is an egomaniac because he wants all the glory. It's, it's a sin to be an egomaniac who want all the glory. Well, for a creature, yes. But not for one who is the source of everything. I think the reason many are Arminian in their theology is because they start, they see the Bible as starting with man and his needs, and they don't start with God. If God is the first source of everything, 
Everything is to glorify Him. And then the doctrine flow from that. But if it's all about man, and God created man to be happy, and that's the whole point of everything, you can see where you, your, your doctrine should be all messed up. So let's be clear and honest with what is being taught here. And I think the Bible will open up to you. Once, once you understand why I am here, the doctrine of election only makes sense. The divisions come and we think we deserve something we don't. But it's not what Paul's point here is that you don't deserve anything other than the wrath of God. If we come to church knowing that if God had left us to ourselves, we would still be out there stumbling around in darkness and our pride headed for hell, we would be much have a much better attitude with each other. And when the word is preached, when we have the right idea of who we are, right? It would be our desire to glorify God. And we would be looking for ways to thank Him in the way we live, in the way we treat one another. And so fourthly, He doesn't choose many of the movers and shakers because that doesn't display His glory like those who are despised and know it. But He saves a few of the rich and noble and powerful to show that He saves whoever He will. The church grows without power. With a with, uh, or without any outward reason. The reason he chooses the lowly is because the world tries to stamp out the church and they don't understand why they can't. You know, every, you know, if you study communism, especially in the last century, the way they have tried to slaughter Christians to wipe out Christianity, they're doing it in China right now, and yet it fails. Why is it? Because the church is full of just the lowly people, the unknown, the weak. Because God is the one who is keeping his church. Then lastly, why, uh, fifthly, why, verse, uh, we see this in verses 29 and 31, why does he save through the foolishness of preaching? Because no one will be in heaven who got there because of something they did or believed or in their own power. If the gospel is offensive and anybody believes, it must be because their heart is been changed. Because the natural man does not find anything attractive in the law. There won't be some praising God more than others in heaven. Because God had more to do in their salvation than, than this other person's salvation. So we'll all be praising God equally. Because we all came from nothing. So the whole system that God has provided salvation and now it's up for each individual to either believe or not is completely destroyed in this text. And that's because, first of all, no one can believe without God enabling them. And secondly, they would have a part in their own salvation. They would have to have some credit. I was smart enough to believe and therefore I have something to boast in. It offers anything here that we have nothing to boast in. This is why there's no such thing as man's free will to choose or reject God. And we saw that in, in Romans 3 and Romans 8. The only thing we will do freely because we're sinners is to reject God. We're born haters of God. And a hater can only hate. See, the Arminian says that one who's a hater of God can all of a sudden decide to love God. Well, no. Where did you get that power to do that? 
The Bible is clear that man's will is in bondage to his sinful nature. Sinners can't do some good thing. So to, to run around pushing our agenda or getting upset if we don't get our way and acting like we deserve more than our brothers and sisters repudiates everything we profess as Christians, right? So if we love one another as we ought, if, if the gospel has transformed us, we understand who we are, how can we not help but willingly serve one another and give way to each other when we need to? Now, if you profess that one day you decided by your own free will to accept Jesus, then I guess we can expect no better that you maybe feel like you're a little better than somebody else. You want your way because after all, you were smart enough but of course we know that is nonsense. Let me just leave you with a couple of verses here as we close. I got one more page. So not about the phone. I can check it. We're getting close. Jeff went a little longer. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It does not say. Is Paul not expanding on these words? Galatians 6.14 But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I in the world. How can we boast in anything other than that? So if you've come to Christ, you have accepted an invitation to die to self because you know you have nothing apart from Christ. As Paul just said there in Galatians and what is the root of this sin that causes division? The secular world and a distressingly large of number of professing Christians would answer that the root of our sin, the problem that we the reason I think we can't get along with each other, is because of poor self-esteem. And this alleged malady is said to be the root of crime, of moral evils, many of which aren't considered evil anymore of interpersonal of personal conflict. And it should come at no surprise that Paul, his root problem, is just the opposite of protecting the world, not poor self-esteem, but inflated self-esteem. It's not that believers in the church think too little of themselves, they think too much of themselves. But that's always our problem. So why are these secular cures being embraced by the church? Why would we seek to heal the conflict of strife if we turn to the psychology book rather than 1 Corinthians, for instance? When Paul deals with the strife of unsaints, he begins at the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. His introductory words have already taken us to God and his provisions for salvation and godly living. Now, after setting the standard of Christian unity, Paul seeks to correct the ungodly divisions of the church. He does it by turning immediately to the gospel. Not by saying you guys uh, don't think, you guys don't love yourself enough. The problem is you love yourself too much. You keep your whole uh, world views out of whack. Our salvation is Christ-centered, not man-centered. How they can Christians divide themselves from other Christians on the basis of men whom they have chosen to follow? We were saved in the name of Jesus Christ. How is it that we can take pride in the names of other men and their systems? 
So uh, one more paragraph, and we're done. So Paul spotlights pride as the root problem among the Corinthians. He does not advocate months and years of therapy. He does not seek the need to know their childhood, their background, their individual struggles as Christians. It's not that those things aren't important to some degree. But notice that Paul doesn't need to have all that information. All they need to know is the gospel. It is by the means of the gospel that God removed the conflict and enmity between sinners and the Lord. It is the means of the gospel that the enmity between men and men is removed. And it also empowers us to overcome our past. Maybe you weren't loved enough. Maybe you were abused. But you are forgiven in Christ. You are loved perfectly in Him. You don't need the love of others. You don't need to be forgiven by somebody else. It's nice when that happens. But you don't need it. It is wonderful when human relationships honor the Lord and do the right thing, but quite often they don't. We have a friend, though, the Bible says, that sticketh closer than a brother. And that's all we need. You think, let me just close with this example. Communion, the Lord's table, is the commemoration of the work of Christ, the gospel, right? Communion is not just a remembrance of an act which our Lord accomplished in the past. It is that. But it is a way of life that we are to emulate every day. We are acting out why we are new creatures. What Christ has done for us. It is a reminder that we are weak and stupid and what we are by the grace of God is because God reached down and stooped us uh, picked us up from self-destruction and gave us new, a new nature and set us on a new way. And now we are humbly serving the Lord. The gospel reminds us who we are and how we ought to live. That is the uh, solution to the vision. It is the gospel and it is humility. And it begins in understanding that we have been elected from the church. Right? Let's stop there today. Chapter 2, which really isn't